The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. So we come this morning to Galatians 3, 15 through 22. We come to what I'm going to call a black diamond passage. So what do I mean by that? Well, you skiers will know what that means, all right? I learned to ski in the center of Massachusetts on a place called Ward Hill in Shrewsbury. It's 20, uh, 220 feet high. That's where I learned how to ski. I learned how to turn and stop and start and all that kind of thing. And a couple of years later, I went up to Sugarloaf, Maine, which has the second highest vertical drop east of the Mississippi, 3,000-foot vertical drop. And being a young man and being ambitious and thinking nothing could ever harm me, nothing could ever hurt me, never been injured before, why would I be injured now, went right to the summit. I'll never forget that. And at the summit, there were all these trails going off, and they were black diamond trails, expert trails. I was like, no problem, all right? Vast overestimation of my skiing ability. Um, And so I chose one trail called Headwall. (laughs) Didn't mean much to me at the time. And as I skied it, I started, I said, man, this is easy. Forgetting I had 3,000 feet to get down, and I wasn't getting down many of those feet yet. And I came around the bend, and there were a bunch of skiers with their equipment off, and they were stretching out, and they were kind of talking to one another about their strategies, I guess, on how to ski the cliff that was in front of them. What was I doing there? I have no idea. I'm not even sure this is a good illustration, Um, but we'll finish it. I had two choices at that point. I could take off my equipment and climb back up to the summit and in shame defeat, ride the chair back down to the intermediate level. Or I could just go. And being 19 or 20 years old, I just went. And I basically fell down the mountain. I I (laughs) did not ski it. I was being yelled at by others who couldn't care less what happened to me, but they were concerned about the snow and what I was doing to the snow. And somehow I got to the bottom. Spent the rest of the day in, uh, in wise defeat on the bottom half of the mountain scaling, uh, skiing green circle trails. Those are the intermediate trails. So what do we do when we come to a complex text in scripture? What do we do? Do we walk back up to the top of the mountain, take the chairlift down? Or do we, I don't that's why I said it's not a good illustration, fall down and have no idea what just happened. Um, I think... Can we just set the illustration aside and just say, there are complicated passages of Scripture. And this is one of them. This is a black diamond passage. Um, The difficulty does not lie in generally big picture what Paul is saying. Generally, what big, big picture what Paul is saying is we are saved from our sins by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. We are saved on the basis of a promise from God, not on the basis of the law from God. We are saved by grace through faith in the promise of Christ. That's what he says. We get that. That's simple. It's straightforward. But Paul says more than that. And that's the issue here. If we're going to go beyond the milk down to the meat, the meat is in the details of what Paul says and how he argues. And trying to follow in detail and honor 
God, by speaking this scripture to us, to try to wrestle with it, that's the challenge. This is a hard passage. For example, how do we understand Paul's seed versus seeds argument here? I'm going to explain why that's actually a really hard, it's hard to see how that's compelling at all, frankly. But if you look even further, which Paul intends to do, it's really very glorious. But it's not obvious right away how a collective noun like seed uh, should it, we should understand it in the singular, not the plural. That, that's a challenge. Or uh, secondly, how do we understand the 430-year chronology? Actually, scholars tell us it was 645 years from Abraham until the giving of the law. So what's with the 430? What, what is he saying there? Did Paul make a mistake? Of course not. But how do we understand that? Or third, what in the world does verse 20 mean? You know, you heard it read, Kyle read it, but maybe your minds were flying already right across it, and we don't need to worry about that, but I kind of do. So verse 20, it says, a mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one, and then he goes on to the next verse. What in the world does that mean? How does it add anything to Paul's argument? F.F. Bruce, a scholar, says there are over 300 different interpretations of that verse, which means no one knows what it means. So those are three different, this is a very challenging passage, but what I want to do here, just before we even get into it, is to exhort you to glorify God by thinking deeply about Scripture. Don't be lazy when you come to the Bible. I mean that seven days a week, just when you have your quiet times as you're reading. Don't shrink back from difficult questions. There is milk in the Word of God, it's true, and it's sweet and it's nourishing, but there's also meat and it's strengthening and it's invigorating and we need to chew on it and we need to try to understand it. Why should we make the effort? Why, why take the journey we're about to take? Why not just say God saves by grace and that's all you need to know? Well, because I think we need to honor the nature of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training and righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we want to embrace that. We want to go into it. We want to listen carefully and seriously to all Scripture to understand what is God saying to me here? How can, it, how can I, I be taught? How can I be rebuked? How can I be corrected? How can I be trained in righteousness? Oh God, make me thoroughly equipped for every good work. I want to honor you, oh Lord. You gave us the Scripture. Help me to understand it. And so we should listen to all Scripture like, like children listening to a loving Father who's speaking words to us. He's, he's sitting us down and he's speaking earnestly to us. And we need to listen to what he says. So I commend to you Proverbs 2, 1 through 6. Listen to those words. My son, if you accept my words and if you store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, and if you call out for insight and if you cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure... Then you will understand the fear of the Lord, and you will find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from His mouth come knowledge and understanding. I want you to pant after truth. I want you to search for it as for hidden silver. So this morning, shifting the, the image, um, we're going to go into the silver mine of God's truth in Galatians three fifteen through 22. We're going to put on our helmets with the headlamps on and we're going to get our, our picks and our shovels and we're going to bring some five-hour energy drinks, I guess, or some energy bars. And we're, going, we're not going to be here for five hours. Don't worry about that. Um, but we're going to bring towels to wipe the sweat off our face. We're going to work at Scripture. 
We're going to try to understand it. And I don't know that all of you will get all of what you can out of this text. But you'll get more than you had when you walked in here. And whatever you get, praise God for it. But let's learn to work. Let's honor God so that we can know him and love him and serve him better. And not shrink back from challenging mental strain on scripture. So let's dig in. And let's begin by looking, as I've already said, at what I could consider the milk aspect here. Paul's overall argument. This is something anybody can get. And that is Paul is asserting, as he has been doing in Galatians, we sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, based on the promise of salvation through faith in Christ alone. That's how we sinners are made right with God. Now, the context of Galatians is that Paul had planted churches in Asia Minor, in Galatia, many churches there, and he and Barnabas appointed elders in every church with prayer and fasting and then left. Because he was, a, he was a, a circuit riding, kind of trailblazing, church planning apostle. And he wasn't going to stay there. He entrusted those churches to the elders. But sometime after that, some Jewish so-called believers in Christ came along. They're called by scholars the Judaizers. There's not called that in the Bible. But they're the Judaizers. And they were trying to mix together the achievement of Christ on the cross with the law of Moses. Trying to put it together in a toxic brew of salvation Uh, a recipe in which faith in Christ alone is not enough. You must add to it obedience to the law. And it begins with circumcision and then it follows along the tracks of the, the Jewish law, the dietary regulations and all of those things. And that if you hold these things to, these two things together, you'll be saved from your sins. So Paul writes Galatians because he is deeply alarmed at what's happening in these churches he planted. And he says, that is no gospel at all. And let anyone who preaches anything other than the gospel we commended to you, let him be eternally condemned. Very serious about that. And so he's very plain in Galatians 2.16 as to what saves us. What is our salvation? And he says it, we know that a, 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 a person is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. That's very plain. So that's Galatians 2.16. He says it very, very uh, clearly. We are justified. We are made right with God. We sinners made right with God simply by faith, not by obeying the law. Now in chapter 3, he's trying to prove that to them, and he begins in verses 1 through 5 by citing their own example. What happened with them? Do you remember how it was when I came to Galatia and preached? Do you remember how you received the Spirit? How I preached the gospel, you heard, you believed, and the Spirit descended, and you received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember how that was? Look at verse 2 and 3 in Galatians 3. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law? Or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? No. So from their uh, experience, what they experienced in the receiving of the Spirit, he then goes even deeper to Old Testament scriptures to prove that saints in the Old Testament have always been justified by faith and not by the law. So he goes right to the the first Jew, the father of the Jewish nation, Abraham. And in verse 6, he cites Genesis 15, 6. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That is how we are declared 
righteous. By the imputation of Christ's righteousness, we believe in Jesus and, it, and we are declared by the judge of all the earth to be righteous. Praise God for that. That's the gospel. And that's what Abraham experienced too. And Abraham is not just an example of faith, but he is, he's actually the paradigm example of how sinners are made right with God, but he is also the channel by which the seed, the Savior, comes into the world. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But he is the paradigm example. So we all get saved the same way Abraham did, and we also get saved through Abraham because of Jesus. And so in verse 8 it says, all nations will be blessed through you, uh, quoting Genesis 12, 3. And so he is how all nations get saved. We all get saved the same way and through him. Paul also shows the two different ways to live. You can live by law or you can live by grace. Trusting in the law or, I mean, trusting in your own fleshly uh, exertions in the law or by faith in the promise. So in, in verses 10 through 12, he says, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Deuteronomy 27, 26. So very plainly, if you're trying to be justified by law, you're under a curse already. You're just under a curse. Why? Because you have to do all the law all the time or you're cursed. And then he goes beyond in verse 11. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4. Context of Habakkuk 2 is of God's judgment on sinners. If you want to survive that judgment on sinners, you must live by faith. And then verse 12, the law is not based on faith. It's an entirely different principle. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Leviticus 18.5. So there's just two different ways to approach salvation. By faith or by, by law. That's what he's getting at. And then he resolves all of this so beautifully, as we saw last time in verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Oh, that's so sweet and beautiful. So that brings us up to speed. That brings us right to verse 15. What's happening now? Well, the Judaizers, Paul senses very much that he's in a debate with these enemies of the gospel, these Judaizers. And he's anticipating what they're going to say back. And he does this incredibly, he does this a lot in Romans. Now, one of you will say to me such and such. He's always thinking what someone will say. What's going to be the reaction? That's just good teaching. It's good preaching to think. Now, you're thinking by this time, if I were you, I'd be thinking this. So Paul is thinking about his debating, you know, his, his enemies in debate, the Judaizers. And he's saying, look, they're, they're going to say, look, all right, fine. We concede to you that Abraham was justified by faith apart from law because there wasn't a law yet. We concede that to you. Okay, but God gave the law through Moses. What are you going to do with that? God did that. So clearly God intended the law to be part of how it is that sinners are made righteous with him. The law has to be part of the salvation package. So we concede what you're saying about Abraham, but it's not relevant to us except that we are going to combine Abraham by faith in the promise and then Moses and the law, and that's what we're saying, the Judaizers. So he's anticipating this. He's thinking this is what the Judaizers will say. 
And so Paul is going to assert that salvation based on a promise is superior to salvation based on the law. And that's what we're looking at in verses 15 through 18. Superior. Why is it superior? I'll tell you quickly why. Because God gets the glory, not us. And because we get the security and the guarantee. And we actually get saved. That's why it's superior. If salvation had been by the law, zero people would have been saved. And that's why it's superior. But let's look at what he says in verses 15 through 18. And he begins by taking an example from everyday life. And he's going to zero in on this, on this idea of a covenant set up based on the promise. Abraham was, the, the basis of the covenant was a promise. Or really you could say an array of promises made to Abraham. It's based on a promise. Look at verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And again, verse 18, if the inheritance depends on the law, then it, is, it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So there it's established. The covenant with Abraham was set up on the basis of a promise. Now that's already been established uh, in verse 6, as we already said. Consider Abraham, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What did he believe? The promise spoken by God. Now the background, of course, were our, an array of promises spoken by God. You remember how God called Abraham, Abram, out of Ur of the Chaldees? Leave your country and your people. Go to the land I will show you. And then he says this. Listen to, listen to all these promises. It's just a river of promises. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you... I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Promise after promise, a river of good things that God's promising to do for Abram. And then in Genesis 15, 1, he says, Do not fear, Abram. I am your shield, and I am your very great reward. He promises himself, I am your reward. And then he goes beyond that to give him some details of promise. He says, come out and look at the starry night sky. Come out of your tent and look up. And look at all those stars and count them if you can. Then he speaks this incredible promise. So shall your offspring be. You're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then he goes beyond that in, in Genesis 15, 7. He says, I'm going to give to you and to your offspring this land forever. And so that, those are promises. So the promise, promise came first, not the law. Sequencing is going to be huge. And also we note that the promise was based on a unilateral action by God. It's just something God is doing. He said, I'm going to do this for you. He's going to, he said, I'm going to pour out blessing on you, Abraham. And so I, I like how one, one pastor put it, or one scholar, he said, the promise is all God saying, I will, I will, I will. The law is God saying, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt, or thou shalt not. You see the difference? It's, it's like night and day. And so God unilaterally is promising to bless Abraham and to give him all of these good things just out of his grace. Law came later, circumcision came later, all of that. Now, this is a covenant. Now, the, pro, the, the argument he's making in verse 15 is a covenant once ratified cannot be changed. 
So how is this a covenant? Well, you remember in Genesis 15, we've been over it before, I consider Genesis 15 one of the great significant chapters in all the Bible, one of the key moments in redemptive history. Abram, at that point, Abram asks God, how do I know that I'm going to get all this? How can I know? So it's an assurance question. I need some assurance. So he has him sacrifice some animals and make a path, a bloody path, with pieces from the sacrificed animals left and right. Okay? And then Abraham waits, you know, he's there for a while, and then a deep sleep, a kind of an eerie thing comes over him, and then God appears in the form of a fire pot. This fire pot symbolizes the presence of God. Now, in a covenant cutting ceremony, and by the way, that's the verb used in Hebrew, you cut a covenant. What do you cut? Well, I think you cut these animals. You cut them up and you make a path. And then the two of you, you two that are making a covenant, you walk through the path, the bloody path of those pieces. And you are saying to your covenant partner, so may this happen to me if I don't keep this covenant. That's what you're saying. But what's so fascinating about Genesis 15 is that God, in the, in the symbolic form of the firepot, moves through the pieces alone. Two things he's saying by that. First, this is a unilateral covenant I am making. I'm making it with myself. On your behalf, but it's my covenant. And this is awesome. May I cease to exist if I don't keep this covenant. I mean, I don't know what more security you could ever have than that. I will do this. I'm swearing to you that I will do this. Now listen, God is not going to cease to exist. (laughs) He's going to keep his covenant promise. Well, that's the covenant that was ratified. It was cut. What Paul's saying is you can't change it later. You can't change it. Look at verse 15. Let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that's been duly established, so it is in this case. You can't add to it. You can't take from it. So this is an everyday life example. All right, Someone makes a last will and testament. And they, they get it ratified and legally it's a legal document. It's, you know, it's, it's there. It's a, it's a will. <laughs> Imagine after a person's death they have the, the time of the reading of the will and um, the executor of the will is a member of the family and he's crossed out everyone else's name and wrote his name on every line. Would you be okay with that? You alright with that? I'm like, well that's why probate court exists when that kind of thing happens. And that's going to get thrown out. I mean, it, it got changed after the fact and, and this executor wrote his own name in so he gets the house and he gets the cars and he gets the money or whatever there, there is. So, what Paul's saying is, we know you can't change a last will and testament later. You can't add to it or take away from it. It's a a sealed document. It's done. So it is, in this case, only infinitely more significant. Can't add something. So the law that came later doesn't change the covenant of promise. It doesn't change it. All right, well, let me take another example from everyday life. What would you think of a father who says to his kids, I'm going to take you... This upcoming weekend, next week, he says on Monday, I'm going to take you guys, we're going to go to the beach. No matter what. You haven't been to the beach in a year, we are going together to the beach. So get excited because we're going to the beach. And then on Wednesday he says, by the way, <laughs> we're only going to the beach if you keep these ten rules right here. Okay? you got to do this, got to do that, got to do that. I think that's unjust. Now, some of you parents may be being convicted right now, so don't do that. When you make an unconditional promise, keep it unconditionally. 
You'll be damaging your kid's ability to understand the gospel. How weighty is that? <laughs> so keep your promises. I actually, this week, I, I asked three of my kids. I said, basically, do I owe you anything? Have I made any promises to you I haven't kept? I wanted to know, and none of them can come up with anything, so that's good. So, but just whatever you promise, keep. Do you not see how the law coming later would nullify the promise? You say, no, 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 it's still there. I'm still promising to take you to the beach, but you have to keep these. Well, the thing is, you don't need the the promise at that point, you see? Then it's just a simple condition of blessings and curses. Keep the law, this is the blessing you get. It's just straight law at that point. The promise has been invalidated. It's gone. And that's what happened with the Judaizers. Do you not see it? For them trying to combine promise with law, it just doesn't work. Basically, promise goes away. And all you have at that point is law. So we have the immutability of the promise of God. And that's awesome. God has promised us heaven. Amen? He has made a promise. I will receive you. You will sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And nothing can stop that. So just be happy. Rejoice. Sorrowful, maybe. But always rejoicing. Why? Because of this. Because God's made us a promise in Christ. And he will keep that promise. Secondly, he says, the covenant with Abraham was made ultimately with Christ. Ultimately, God made his covenant with Christ. When he says seed, God was thinking about Jesus. And this is pretty difficult here. This is rough sledding, but let's try it. Verse 16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scriptures do not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. So simply put, let me just tell you what I'm going to say about this. All of God's promises through Abraham or whatever promises there are to the people of God are in Christ, all of them. They are yes and amen in Jesus. We get everything through Christ. That's the simple, straightforward teaching. But how does he prove it? Now that's where we go black diamond suddenly. It's difficult to follow his logic here, how he's handling the scripture. You know, he's saying fundamentally the salvation promise was made in light of the work of Christ on the cross and the empty tomb. The problem comes with uh, something known as a collective noun. Okay, a collective noun. A collective noun is a noun that could be either singular or plural. Okay, seed or offspring is such a noun. Sometimes it can be plural, sometimes it can be singular. And we have to try to find out from context which it is. Another good example would be hair. Hair is a collective noun. So suppose I said to you, I want you to cut off your hair and give it to me. And for some reason you decided to do that. And you came back bald as a bowling ball. And you handed me all your, all your hair in a bag. And I said, no, no, no. I, I didn't say hairs, meaning many. I said hair, meaning one. Wouldn't you feel a little... I mean, that's strange now. That wasn't clear. And that, that's how this, this whole argument is based on that kind of logic and and it's the same in the hebrew as it is in the greek as it is in the english it's a collective noun so does paul have the right to do this sometimes you get the feeling with apostles that they're like you know ambulance drivers on on the rules of the road and they can just run red lights and they're fine because they got the flashing light and etc is that what's going on here he can do whatever he wants with the scripture no it isn't what he's doing is he's just looking deeper than we do He's looking beyond to what's actually happening as God's making a promise to Abraham. He understands more about the intertrinitarian relationship and what God's actually doing when he makes promises to us. 
He's going deeper. So first and foremost, the word seed can often does mean something plural. As it says in Genesis twenty-two seventeen, God says to Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring or seed, multiply it as the stars of heaven and as the sand on the seashore. That's definitely plural. No doubt about it. So if I were a Judaizer, I'd go right to that verse and say, wait a minute, it's plural there. No doubt about it. But seed can mean singular. Like in Genesis 4.25, the word seed, same Hebrew word, just refers to Seth and to Seth alone. In Genesis 21.13, the seed, word seed can refer to Ishmael and to Ishmael alone. It does refer to Ishmael and Ishmael, so it can be singular. Could be singular. So what is Paul saying here? Well, all of God's promises focus on one of Abraham's descendants, not on them all. God is in the habit of taking Abraham's descendants and choosing one out and saying, this one, not that one. And he does that with Isaac and Ishmael. You remember that? He had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And he makes it very plain that though both of them are biologically sons of Abraham, when he says seed, he's meaning Isaac, not Ishmael. He makes it very plain. And he says in Genesis 21, 12, through Isaac shall your offspring be named or reckoned. It's a decision God makes. It's election. He's choosing Isaac out, not Ishmael. After Sarah died, Abraham married another woman, Keturah. She had by, Abraham had by her multiple sons, Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, Shua, all these sons. God's saying they're all sons of Abraham, but it's through Isaac that the seed of Abraham is reckoned. He's choosing the one, right? So he says a verse later in Genesis 25, 3, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. So that's a symbol of one chosen out of the many. There's just this one seed of Abraham he's focusing on. Later in Galatians, we'll see in Galatians 4, he had two sons, the sons of the slave woman, the sons of the free woman. So that's exactly how he's thinking here. God chooses one of Abraham's seed and works through that one, that one, not all the others. So God thinks singular, not plural, in these salvation promises. It's the same thing that we see earlier in Genesis 3.15. You remember how uh, Adam and Eve fell at the Garden of Eden and how then the judgment comes and then God speaks this word of judgment to the serpent who represents Satan. And he says in Genesis 3.15, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed or offspring. Again, collective, but he goes then singular. He will strike your head and you will bruise his heel. One seed. Now the woman, she, Adam said she would become the mother of all living. So all of us come from the woman, from Eve. But God had one seed in mind, and that seed was who? It was definitely Jesus. Jesus was the serpent crusher. Now, he paid for it with his life, but he crushed the serpent. Amen? And that was that one seed. And so Paul isn't wrong here. He's just saying when God is thinking seed, he's not thinking seeds meaning many. He's thinking one, and it isn't Isaac. And it isn't Jacob, it's Jesus ultimately. See, Isaac and Jacob, they're just sinners. They're symbolic. The physical lineage goes through them, that's important, but salvation comes through Jesus. Jesus is the seed. We are a Christ-centered people, amen? Everything comes to us through Jesus. Just stop and worship Jesus right now. Just in your heart say, thank you, Jesus, for all the inheritance you're giving me. Everything I have comes through you. You are 
the owner of the world. In Revelation 5, he gets the title deed with the seven seals of the world. And it's given to Jesus, and he can give it to anyone he wants to. He is the seed. In Christ, 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises that God has made are yes and amen. And so we, in Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You hear that? For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So we are chosen, we are elected, we are saved in Jesus. He is the seed. Promise comes through Jesus Christ. Next, he, he argues chronology. He says, now which come, comes first, the promise or the law? Clearly, promise first, then a law. And the law, verse 17, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. It's the sequencing, this, then that. If you have to be justified by law, then where was the law when Abraham was justified? The law came 430 years later, a long, long time later. And it doesn't nullify the earlier promise. It cannot. It cannot set it aside. Now, he's going to make the same argument specifically on circumcision in Romans 4. By the way, the best commentary I have ever read on Galatians is the book of Romans. <laughs> amen, amen. That's the best commentary. Somebody asked, what's the best commentary on Galatians? Romans it just is. It's almost like to some degree, some of these themes are pencil sketches in Galatians and they're full oil portraits in Romans. He just goes into great detail. And so he does the same thing on sequencing with circumcision. Abraham, it was spoken, Abraham believed God, was credited him as righteousness. In what condition was he when he was declared righteous? Was he circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, he was uncircumcised. He was like a Gentile. And circumcision came later, and it doesn't nullify the promise already made to him. It's just for a different reason. Okay? Centuries later. Now, what's with this 430 years? Scholars tell us that Jacob entered Egypt 215 years after this promise had been made. And then the exodus happened another 430 years after that. So, that means the law was given... 645 years after the promise was initially spoken to Abraham... Did Paul make a mistake with the whole 430? No. What he's saying is that this promise was repeated from father to son, from Abraham to Isaac, and it's stated in, in Exodus, uh, sorry, Genesis 26, the same promise made to Isaac, and then again it's stated to Jacob. That's the last statement of the promise you have in the book of Genesis. Then 430 years later the law comes. So we're following promise, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then a gap of 430 years, then comes the law. God had already ratified that covenant and it does not nullify it at all. So in verse 18, the inheritance is either based on promise or law. It can't be both. You see they're mutually exclusive on this. It's either going to be unilaterally, God will save us. Or you have to earn it yourself. You have to save yourself. You can't mix them. It's either or. And so verse 18, if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. Do you see that? It's either or. It's either law or promise. It can't be both. So, so much for the Judaizers who are trying to combine them. You can't. It's law or promise. But God in his grace gave it to a promise. So basically what Paul's saying, saying Judaizers, God is against you. God intends to grace us with salvation. Amen? Just give it to us freely as it. By the way, isn't that the essence of an inheritance? 
Who could ever say, I deserve to be in your will? I mean, try that sometime with a wealthy relative, all right? I deserve to be in your will. Try that. Look, it just doesn't work that way. Will, last will and time, that's always grace. It's a gift. And so God graces us in verse 18 with salvation. God graces us with an inheritance. I am your inheritance. And, and it, God himself is the inheritance. He's what we get. We get heaven with God. We get to look at the glory of God. We get to be with God. How can we ever say, I deserve that. Give it to me as a matter of law. You owe it to me. No, it's always going to be by grace. And so, summary. God promised to Abraham and to his seed, Jesus Christ, an eternal kingdom with himself as the central blessing. And through faith in the promise of Christ, we become heirs with Abraham. The covenant of salvation depends totally on God because it is based on a promise. The law could could not be added to this ratified covenant. The inheritance does not come from law. Then why was the law given? Isn't that what they're going to say? It's like the next thing. All right, well, if, it, if it's not for salvation, then what was it given for? Why was the law given at all? Look at verses 19 through 22. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. Scratch your head on that one. I didn't even list that as part of the black diamond list. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Verse 21, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. All right, so the question's asked here. Why then was the law given if not for salvation? Verse 19 says it directly. What then was the purpose of the law? God descended in fire in Genesis 15 and made a covenant with Abraham. He came down in in fires, in the fire pot. But then later, he came down in fire to the top of Mount Sinai. I don't understand that. God in fire makes a promise covenant. God descends in fire and gives the law. What is he doing then? It is God, right, that gave the law. How do we understand his actions? What is he doing in giving us the law? What is the point of it? The Ten Commandments, we're told in in Exodus 32, were the engraving of God's own finger. It's not like God didn't know that this was happening. Moses didn't write this. God wrote the Ten Commandments directly. What was God doing in all that? What was the purpose? Well, the answer Paul gives right here in this verse is the law was added because of transgressions until the seed, the promised seed, should come. What does that mean? Well, first, I need to tell you, this is not a complete answer to the purpose of the law. The law actually has multiple purposes in our lives. But we're going to the center of the issue of salvation, on the issue of sinners being made right with God. What is the purpose there? And it's, it, the, the purpose was, it was given because of transgressions. Now, that phrase is not incredibly clear so i think when you when you're reading a difficult passage and you're trying to understand what does this mean the law was given because of transgressions well i what i like to do is go to a good commentary i think that's good don't you agree have you guys heard of any good commentaries on the book of uh, galatians have you heard any i mean is there one that we can buy actually they're really inexpensive you can get 
a whole bunch of commentary, a whole commentary set for about six or seven bucks. Frankly, most churches will give them to you. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you on behalf of the elders, if you don't have a Bible, lean forward and there's one, take it home. We'll replace it. The best commentary on Galatians is Romans. All right, so what does it say in Romans? Well, this is what's going on here. The purpose of the law was to increase the transgression of Adam. That's a head-scratcher. You're like, wait a minute, I thought God was against sin. Oh, God's more against sin than you can possibly imagine. He hates it with a passion. But the law was not given to reduce the number of sins. It was actually to draw it out and multiply it. All right, what do I mean by that? Well, in in Romans chapter 5, we have the doctrine of original sin. Adam sinned at the garden, and we all sinned in him. Positionally, we were born as human beings, sinners. And that's why infants die, because they're children of Adam. And they're under the same judgment, even though they didn't commit a volitional sin like Adam did. But once we get older, and we understand laws and all that stuff, things start to happen, then we commit our own volitional sins. And that's exactly why it was given. It says the law, this is Romans 5.20, note this. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. It's counterintuitive. We think, oh, laws are given so we sin less. That's not what's going on. It was given to draw it out. So here's the image I have. Okay? Imagine a jar, crystal clear jar, filled with river water. And you just... Sit it there and don't move it for a while. And everything just settles to the bottom. It's all at the bottom. And so you look at it like this, and it looks clear as crystal. But let's say the jar has a lid on it, and you pick it up and you shake it, and then put it back down. Now it's all cloudy, nasty. I wouldn't drink that, all right? That's the human heart. And the law shakes up the hidden evils of the human heart and makes them obvious to us. It shows us, like on the cover of the bulletin, our chains. We're in chains. The whole world is in chains to sin and we can't break out. And the law makes it plain. And it doesn't matter what statements of the law you look at. You could take, you could take the Ten Commandments, right? Well, I'm just going to focus, I'm just going to try to keep the Ten Commandments. You can't. Because you have heard that it was said you shall not murder, but if you're even angry with your brother, you're in danger of the fire of hell. Well, I'm going to try to, you know, I'm not going to commit adultery. But if you lust after a woman, you commit adultery in your heart. You say, wait a minute, that's not fair. You're looking at my heart. Well, read the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. What part of your body do you use to covet? He's looking in the mind and the heart. And Jesus told us, he says, that's how I'm looking at the Ten Commandments. I'm looking at your heart. Not just did you not murder, but have you ever been murderously angry at anyone? Not just did you commit adultery, but have you ever done so in your heart? Coveting, have you ever yearned for something that didn't belong to you? You can't keep it. And so it shakes you up and shows you that. Or you could look at, how about 613 commandments? You can't keep 10, how about keeping 600 of them? Can't keep that one. All right, Jesus made it simple. He just organized them all into two. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. The second is like it. Love your neighbors yourself. You can't keep that either. All that happens is the law shakes up and shows you the vileness of your heart. And it brings you to the point in Romans 7 where you say, what a wretched person I am. Who will rescue me? Who will rescue me from sin? 
Law does that. It shows you your need for a sinner. And we're going to get there in Galatians next. It brings you like a schoolmaster right to Christ. It brings you to the foot of the cross. It shows you your chains. That's the purpose of the law. The law itself, nothing wrong with it. Holy and righteous and good. That's why it does what it is. You look at the commandment and say, this is a good commandment. I just can't keep it. And so it brings us right to the cross. Look at verse 24, though it's not in our text. It says, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Law itself brings wrath, Romans 4.15. It brings death, Romans 7.5. We can't keep it because it's weakened by the flesh, Romans 8.3. And so that's why the law was added. It was added so that the trespass might increase. Now, the law is inferior to the promise because of its mediators, verses 19 and 20. I know you're tired. I told you, you'd need, you'd need a towel, wipe the sweat off your face. Get, this is the time for the five-hour energy drink, so go ahead and knock it back. We're almost done. But what in the world at verse 19 and 20? The law is inferior because of the mediators, okay? It was put into effect through angels by a, a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. All right, basically in a mediated covenant, you have two parties, two individuals, and a deal is being made between the two of them. You have a mediator going between the two, etc. What he's saying here is that the old covenant law mediated by angels and by Moses is inferior because of the two parties, okay? God and man. Both of them have to keep the, the deal. Blessings and curses, that's the nature of the law. But the promise is not so. Remember, who is it that walked through the pieces of the, of the animal? God alone. And so God is one. He's the only one with whom he made the covenant. It's an inter-Trinitarian covenant. And so there's no need in this sense for a mediator. God made it with himself. God is one. That's what he's saying. Now, I'm not denying Christ is our mediator. It's a different teaching, a different moment. But that's the best I can make. So now there are 301 possible interpretations for verse 20. I don't know if it's right. But what it's saying is it's superior because God made the deal with himself, not with us, in which case it would have been weakened. And you say, what in the world is the angels? What do the angels have to do? I'm not going to tell you except that there's some verses here that talk about it. Hebrews 2.2 2 and Acts 7.53 both mention that angels were involved in giving Moses the law. I think they just carried it down to him. You see the same thing in Revelation 1.1. The revelation was given to God the Father, given by God the Father to Jesus. He gave it to an angel who gave it to John who gave it to us. That's what it says in Revelation 1.1. But the law is not contrary to the promises of God. Verse 21. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. What is going on with this? If they were both trying to save you, they would be in competition. But that's not what the law is trying to do. The law is not trying to save you from sin. It's trying to show you that you're a sinner. By the way, that's the whole problem with legalists, okay? Basically, God gave the law to show us that we are sinful. Legalists use the law to show God that we are righteous. Do you see how perverted that is? The legalist takes the law and says, look how righteous I am. That was not the point. It was to show you that you need a savior. And so we've already learned this last week in Galatians 2.21. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained by the law... And Christ died for nothing. So no, the law is not opposed to the promise of God. Frankly, the law really helps the promise of God. It brings you to the one who can make the promise and keep it. It brings you to Jesus, the promise maker, the promise keeper. That's what the law does. They're not in competition. They're actually working together, ultimately. 
So righteousness cannot come by the law. Verse 22, the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So on the cover of your bulletin, there's some shackles there, empty now, praise God. My chains have fallen off. I'm set free now. I'm free from the guilt and condemnation of my sins. I'm free from the authority and power of sin. Sin has no right to command me. And now as a child of God, I am free to tell every temptation that ever comes to me, be gone from me, I am no longer a slave to sin. There is no single temptation that ever comes to me with authority to command me. I have the authority to tell it no. I can crush every temptation now. I'm free and so are you if you're a Christian. But apart from Christ, the whole world's in chains and the law is given to shed light on those chains and show them to them. That's all. They don't set them free. So what application can we take from this? Well, come to Christ, believe in him, trust in him. Trust in Jesus. Let him free you from sin. Let him free you from the condemnation. He is the promise maker. He is the promise keeper. Look to Christ and to Christ alone. Salvation is a free gift of God, and I'm begging you, don't leave this place unregenerate. Don't leave it under the wrath of God. Trust in Jesus. You don't need to move a muscle. You don't need to do anything. That's salvation by law. Just believe. Repent and believe. Turn away from your sins and say, I need a Savior and believe. Second of all, see the value of hard work in Scripture. Don't be lazy and don't expect your pastors to be lazy. Don't settle for, don't settle for, for milk if there's meat in the passage. Demand that, nicely, of your elders, okay? <laughs> if the Lord tarries sometime, I'll be gone, but there'll be other people here. If this is still a healthy church, you folks will want to hear meat from the word and not get lazy. So, and do the hard work yourself in your quiet times. Dig into the word of God and learn deeply and be mature. Don't be like a child. Thirdly, embrace the promise of eternal life in Christ. Delight in it. I love Romans 4.16. The promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. You are guaranteed of heaven. Think about that. I just say to you again, that should make you happier than you are right now. And some of you are looking very happy right now. And that's great. Be even happier. You're guaranteed because it's promise, not law. He's promised you heaven and he will keep it. And then finally, understand how to be sanctified by promise, not by law. This is tricky, and we'll talk more about it, but I just want to give you a first whiff at it. If you have a sin problem in your life, sanctification by law says, I'm on my own. I'm on my own. I gotta, I've got to face this problem myself. Sanctified by trust in the promise says, every command of God is actually a promise for me. Someday I'm going to be holy. So I'm going to take that, like Joshua facing the walled city of Jericho, and I'm going to say, God's promised us this whole land. I can take this city by the, by the power of God. And then you do the things he tells you to do, walk around the wall seven times and give out a shout. He's going to win the victory. And you're going to do some things. You will take some stands and you're going to do some things. But that's sanctification by faith, not by law. So whatever sin you're struggling with, take the blood of Christ and the death of Christ and resurrection of Christ and apply it to that as part of the promised land of your holiness. And say, I can be holy. God, do it in me. Close in prayer now, please. Father, we thank you for this challenging passage, for all the things we have learned. Thank you for the patience of the people of God here listening carefully to these many verses. Oh God, take these truths and press them deep into our hearts for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. 
Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.